This is Jack Sawinski, and you're listening to Friars on the Farm Podcast. Welcome to Friars on the Farm Podcast. I'm Donovan, and coming to me via Skype is Roy. Are we going to have baseball or not this year? Not I'm dying to know. <laughs> we're, you know, it, I, we're going to talk about that, and I'm, I'm, I want safe baseball. I want baseball that's not going to take away from any percept, any any resources that are going to take away from the public. That's not going to put you know players, personnel, and the whole personal economy of baseball people in jeopardy. Right. One person there, getting there sick so means many every, questions. You know, right now in Korea, they're doing it right. They seem to be doing it right. I don't, you know, we don't know the particulars. Uh, we certainly love watching those at like two in the morning watching Korean baseball, but we don't know exactly how they're doing it. And I haven't read too much about what exactly they're doing. Well, their whole society, their their whole response to this thing, I, I, it wouldn't fly here. We just, for, as a society, we aren't we aren't programmed to be um, to be so willing to be tracked and tested and right. all of this. The sacrifices. I, so you see, yeah, you see all of these protests, people saying, you know, I want my liberty, I want my freedom, I want to be able to go do the things that I want to do. So I saw a, a thread on Twitter. This guy traveled to Korea, and he was explaining what he had to do. So as soon as he gets off the plane, he gets his temperature taken. He has to answer a questionnaire. If he says that he's had any evidence of, of symptoms, then he's quarantined for two weeks. Everybody has to be tested within the first like five days of arriving in the country. He, before he could leave the airport, he had to put an app on his phone and enable location tracking so that they could track who he'd come in contact with, where he'd been. I mean, all of this. Yeah, so they – and these are the kinds of controls that um, and, and Americans, they – we hold our liberties much too sacred to right. be willing to do those right. kinds of things, to, to go to that kind of an extent. But that's really what it takes to contain this this kind of a – this kind of an outbreak. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're going to talk about Keith Law's uh, article on the five rounds and how that hurts uh, minor league or you know, pro baseball. Later on, we're going to have David Krell. David Krell is an author of several baseball books, but we're going to talk to him about Jackie Robinson. And, uh, a true historian. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And, you know, now that we've had it and we're going to talk about, you know, what's going to come up in a minute, I really wanted, I, I really was ill prepared. I had so much. I wanted to ask and talk about, but we only had about 30 minutes of time. So we might have to have him come on and go a little deeper um, into Jackie Robinson. But uh, it's that's a really excellent interview and discussion about you know his his impact on popular culture, the sport and civil, you know, in, in America in general. Well, there have been so many books and movies and everything made about his life and so many stories and articles that are there. There isn't enough time in the day to try to cover all of that kind of stuff. And and David being a historian, you, it's like it, you ask him a question. He wants to tell you a whole story yeah. about it and the whole, you know, <laughs> well, the, the background behind the different people involved in the stories. And all of that is really, really interesting stuff. <sighs> so meanwhile, Major League Baseball has announced that there's only going to be five rounds of the draft. Yeah, five rounds. So, okay, so they'd already released what the draft pools were going to be and what all the slot values were going to be. Okay, so we're going to cut that off after five rounds. And then after that, anybody signed after that, it's a $20,000 maximum limit, right? So, so I ran, I looked at last year's draft because, as you know, I tracked the numbers. I, I had the draft pool, and I was seeing who was signed and when. So the Padres signed 25 players who were drafted after the fifth round in 2019, spending over $2 million total on those players. 16 of them signed for $75,000 or more. Um, so hundreds of kids across baseball with dreams to play pro ball will have to wait another year or ditch their dream completely because of this. Yeah, and then you you know talking to Jim Callis, uh, you know several weeks back, talking about the impact that's going to have on college guys. You know if if um, if the senior and and how that's going to affect them going into the draft for only twenty thousand uh, dollars. These seniors that these seniors that are going to come back, 
you know, the coaches got to play the guys that are younger, that are going to be a little bit better. Um, you know, how much, how many innings are they going to have on the mound? How many at-bats are they going to get uh, as a returning senior? So they have this choice to either do that and, and face maybe not getting enough playing time to make it for another full year. And the effect of that would be on their draft than to go in for 20000 where, you know, in a regular regular draft year, they would go for at least a lot more. Well, and these are college students. We, we, can't, we can't forget that, that they're college students. There's a limited number of scholarships that are available. So yeah. not only – so, yeah, they may have another year of eligibility extended to them, but they have to be able to afford to go to school and you know live and eat and all of that when they just got a degree. Right. So if they're not going to go play baseball – maybe they're going to choose to go, well, I guess I'm going to go, I got my CPA, so I'm going to go be an accountant or you know, whatever it is. Right, right, right. So, you know. <laughs> so guys like Steven Wilson that we talked to a couple months ago, that he wound up having a chance to come back for a fifth year because of an injury. Uh, he might not have had that opportunity. That, that year that he came back is what made him a signable, draftable player. He, yeah. he renovated his whole chances in baseball, and now he's on the cusp of being a major leaguer. So, But that whole path would have been derailed if he was at that decision point today. Yeah, so I, you know, and, and, and people are jumping to conclusions with this, with the five rounds for one, it's for one year. It's an incredibly... Um, it's an unprecedented year, so whatever choices are made, five or ten, it's going to be different than the normal years. Um, but they're not going to go back to a forty-round draft. They will not. For they've sure already decided. I think it's twenty rounds. They dropped it in half. Um, right. Because so what? What I was a little bit surprised when they came out with this five rounds, and after that, it's twenty thousand max. I was hoping that they would say you can sign. X number of players for up to 125,000 or some, right. you know, have a second tier of players. Cause like Mason Fioli that we've talked to a couple times, he signed for $135,000. The Padres signed Bodie Rascon for like 325,000. They picked him like in the 20 something round. So there's a lot of guys out there that, that would sign for that amount of money. But now that it's not out there, $20,000 these days that, you know, maybe that buys you a ticket across the country and it gets you through one off season. Right. And it doesn't exactly pay for, you know, a lot of those signing bonuses for the Mason Fiolis of the world that pays college to, you know, that pays college loans that can pay credit card loans. Uh, there's a big fat tax on that. So um, that money has gone pretty quick, even, you know, into the $200,000 range. That's, um, you know, we think, wow, it's a lot of money. Well, you slap, you know, take a third of that away for taxes or 28% or so. And then you're paying off, four years of college or whatever. And that's there's it's gone. Maybe they buy a right. nice car and that's about it. And, and well, hopefully they're smarter than that. <laughs> right. Well, <I'm, laughs> yeah. Um, and then going into like the, these colleges and the high school players that, you know, they're going to Juco is going to be bandit town. Like I, I really believe there's going to be so much college you know, high school players going into college that these college, this next college season is going to be just chock full of talent. Um, of course, that top layer of that talent is going to have to find somewhere else to go. Maybe that'll even extend into the independent leagues. Some of those guys that don't get, you know, that maybe they don't want to do that return senior year, go into the independent leagues. Maybe it's another year of independent leagues and the summer leagues just crushing it. Um, it's really interesting how that's going to kind of play out. Well, we're going to see the next uh, two, three, four drafts are going to be really really deep because of yeah. this it's going to spill over for the next couple of years so so then why try to compete this year if you know that next year's draft is going to be that chock full of talent and you're kind of on the borderline you know maybe there's incentive for teams to kind of dog it a little bit yeah yeah i, I would like to think that there's more competitiveness than that but you know we've seen you know what detroit or baltimore or some of these teams do i mean the padres for a few years and Seem like they're just fielding a roster to 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 go through the motions, right, and then right. oh hey, we finished with the second worst record in the in the league. But hey, we get to pick second next year. <laughs> we get this big draft pool. What was I reading? Dennis Lynn's uh, Dennis Lynn came out with his mailbag today, and um, someone asked about why she did you know did we you know how stupid were the Padres for trading uh, Yasmani Grandal and you know getting Matt Camp? I remember getting oh man Matt Camp. My first thought was, oh my gosh, Matt Kemp. But then my second thought is like, yeah, that guy's not, he's old. <laughs> um, and in the next few years for Major League Baseball and the team, 
spending's going to be down, particularly for teams like the Padres, you know, like the Brewers, mm-hmm. the you know these lower to mid market teams that you know we're not minor league baseball, but we certainly need. I feel that these teams need those gate revenues and revenues from merchandising and concessions to kind of pay the bottom line. They do. I, I, they, they absolutely do. Um, and I guess this you, comes to a separate topic of the, the negotiations that are going on between major league baseball, the owners and the players association and the things that they're talking about um, is apparently when they came to this agreement earlier this year, the assumption was that at some point they would resume activities. We have baseball in front of fans. full, in front of fans. Yeah. And now major, the owners are coming back. Uh, if we're going to play in front of no fans, then the owners are going to lose out on revenue and then they're going to be hurting and they can't afford to pay the players their full salary. But I, I it's opening up a whole Pandora's box of, yeah. of, of, so what are they going to open up their books for the first time ever? No. No, they're not going to do that. They're not. You know, and, and they're going to cry, and well, and they will cry. They will cry poor when. Oh, for sure. I know. I just said that they they kind of need those gate revenues, but you know they're going to be crying poor when they're really not. And they're not. No, nobody's nobody's losing their shorts in Major League Baseball. I mean, they made ten point seven billion dollars in revenue last year, and about half of that went to the players. And I'm sure the owners profited handily with the remainder of, of that. I, yes, there's a lot that goes into baseball operations yeah. and all the other stuff that goes to putting on the show. But I, these guys are making a ton of money. And so to cry poor and say that you have to furlough all of these regular ballpark operations staff and, and that you need to cut the draft back because they can't afford to pay the bonuses and all this – Come on. I, I, I just I have a hard time believing it. Yeah, it's a it's a mess. It's a mess. And until meanwhile, we you know, the the big question is when players come back, what's it gonna look like? And you put it on our on our agenda, you know, Sean Doodle and I love Sean Doodle Doolittle. Uh, he's a big Star Wars guy. And I love Star Wars, so the Obi-Wan Sean Kenobi, the Obi Sean Kenobi Doolittle uh Twitter handle's gotta be one of the best Twitter handles right next to uh Golden Sombrero and my um from Mike, I think Mike Rodriguez from uh, Mike from minor league baseball, the Golden Sombrero, right? So, but his thread that he put out here, um, where he's talking about, so all this discussion has been about the business side of it and yeah. the dollars and cents, but he's talking about health protections for players, families, staff, stadium workers, and the workforce it would require to resume a season. And he did a fantastic job of bringing up point after point. And having news articles and references yeah. to back up every single one of the points and the questions that he raises. And so he, uh, David Dahl uh, has he's had diabetes his whole life. He's a diabetic and that puts him at a state of elevated risk. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of players and coaches and and what have you. I mean, Bruce Bochy, he's had heart procedures. So I would think that he's somebody that would be on that. So being around baseball, Boach isn't around be, anymore, right? But there are other. Oh, there well, are absolutely, other and we don't coaches even. And, and there's coaches at various, you know, deeper ages uh, that have pre-existing conditions, and those that we don't even know, and that once they start testing these people, you know, every year through um, when they do the physicals. Someone comes up with something. Oh, we found this heart murmur. We found this condition here. You know, and right? Kenley Jansen. Kenley yeah. Jansen has had heart procedure. He's had two separate heart procedures. Yeah, and he's what twenty eight, twenty nine years old. Yeah, um, I, I just he did it so well. And and the, you know, not only is it t- the the taking away of resources from the perceived public. I I don't. I think there's no way that Major League Baseball has a season, and to have those testing that testing available isn't at the very least, I mean, this is if anyone and their mother can be tested for COVID-19, taking a large amount of that resources and putting it towards Major League Baseball, I think is just going to be incredibly bad optics. As much as the country needs baseball, and, you know, I'm right there with it. I want to watch baseball, but I would rather scrap the season, be done with it, and then just work towards the next year and really worry about the health of the nation and the players, the fans, and all the, you know, like I said before, the people economy, the whole culture 
of people behind the scenes uh, from the hotel lobby to, you know, to the clubhouse guy. Well, there, there is a, there's a, a value. There's a, there's a moral value. There's a, what's the, what am I looking for? Just for people to have that right. sense of normalcy to get yeah. back to being able to watch their favorite sport on TV. And so even if there's no fans in the stands, I, there is a value to playing baseball and it, it it's argued. I can see how it makes sense to put those, those assets, those, those, those dollars into making it happen. Um, if, if it's going to be the detriment of, you know, like national security kind of stuff, then no, you don't do yeah. it. Um, but so in the white house, they're testing everybody every day and there's all these companies that are trying to develop these tests as quick as they can. These that you get a very fast response. Um, there's a certain level of reliability and I don't know where we're going to be a month and a half from now. Maybe they'll have the ability to do that for the, I'm guessing about a hundred people that on each team that you would need, um, to just put on the actual between the players, the coaches, the support staff, the broadcast crew, cameramen, all of that stuff, groundskeepers. Yeah. Um, you're talking probably a couple hundred people per ballpark, uh, without fans. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of go back, because I had a really good thought. You know, the the baseball is a good way to lift America's spirits, but it's if it's not the largest case of of cultural eyewash, then I don't know what is. Like everything's fine, we're playing baseball, but still people are dying and still people are getting sick. You know, today I was at the um, I I, uh, I volunteered. I finally found a place where I can volunteer. I have all this downtime uh, from my from work. Uh, I'm still working, but I have downtime, and we handed out food to, uh, you know, to all the families of students at this elementary, and I must have put a hundred boxes, two hundred boxes in cars, um, along with other people that had, you know, we all had protective gear on. Um, I had no gloves, but I had the one. I was a box guy. I didn't put the food in. The people that had gloves put food in, and I don't, you know, we don't know who was sick. We don't know who wasn't sick. You know. It being any of the volunteers or the hundreds of cars that came through the line, you know, and and I leaned into their cars and I put stuff in their automobiles and I touched where they touch and we don't know. And I hope you took a shower when you got home. <laughs> I, oh, I totally no, it, that's you know, um, but in that to have that eighty times, I mean, just what it takes to get to the field is uh, just really I think goes above and beyond. But to go back to Sean's. Um, you know, his post right here, it says the big thing about the disease is if once you get it, like there's long-term effects, uh, the COVID-19 patients often develop lung scarring or ground glass opposites. I think I said that word wrong. These were, these were found even in asymptomatic patients. And because the virus virus often affects both lungs can cause permanent damage in some cases, definitely a concern for an athlete. Right. And now there's apparently some syndrome that children are being diagnosed with that they think is related to COVID-19, like an autoimmune kind of a disorder yeah. that, that they're breaking out with. And it's not a it's not a lethal kind of a thing, but we don't know what long term effects this has. Right. And the idea about herd immunity that works with some diseases, it doesn't work with others. It's too early to know. So there really are a lot of questions that they need to answer before it can be safe to put all these people together and play. So did you hear that after this weekend in Arizona, they're allowing sports activities? Yeah, I, I saw that. So I haven't heard anything about if baseball is going to be resuming anything in Arizona, if like spring training 2.0 is going to be starting up or anything like that. I'm curious to see how that works out. Well, it's very curious to to like even that states that do that, that companies are going to allow their people to come back to work like yeah, if I own a restaurant in Arizona, I'm dying for people to come back. But even though the state says it's safe, is it safe? And is it smart? Right. And if someone goes to my restaurant and gets sick, what's that going to, you know, that's going to, it could ruin me forever. Not only would I be ruined for, it would just, it could, you could lose your job. And when someone gets sick, um, it, it's not good. So I, it's a really good question. It's, um, I would think that teams would probably, Maybe test out some of those extraordinary measures that they want to do to have the baseball season. Maybe have a few players. You know, there's tons of ball players that live in Arizona that are currently in Arizona that they could have 25, 30 people come in 
under some of those simulated, uh, you know, some of the simulated ideas that they have for starting the season and seeing how that works for a couple of weeks while we wait for the kind of country to get better. Right. Now, it's what something that's encouraging is that Major League Baseball did this antibody test and they I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they tested a very large number of players, coaches, personnel. And the the percentage that came back positive, meaning that they had been exposed to the virus at some point, was remarkably low. Point seven percent, I think it was. Yeah. So that tells me that the the teams have been very good at instructing their players to remain isolated and they've been doing a very job of good job of isolating themselves. So when these guys get back together, there should be a I don't know how to say this, a relatively clean pool of, right. of players right. that without you're the risk of somebody coming in and infecting a whole team. So there have been um, like over in Europe, they tried to get soccer going back again. I think it was the Premier League. Yeah. And and then next thing you know, a couple of guys test positive and then they have to quarantine an entire team. And then the whole schedule gets thrown you know, into the grinder. It's and I and that's a possibility. We don't know what that's going to mean when if somebody it's not really if it's when somebody tests positive yeah. once baseball starts up again. And once you test positive, you've already infected a handful of people because you don't start showing symptoms to well after you have it and you're con- transmitting it. Right. That's where the, the daily testing with quick feedback comes in. I saw a story today. Uh, there was a, a chorus that got together for practice up in Washington, north of Seattle. And this was in the early days of, of this whole thing. And it was like 65 people that got together. One person came in with, they'd been fighting symptoms like a cold for a couple of days. And I think it was like 40 something out of the 60 wound up getting sick, actively sick with COVID-19. Um, and a couple of the members passed away as a result. But they all went and like immediately they all self-isolated themselves. They, they realized what was going on and they were responsible and and they were able to contain it without spreading. Because you figure how many people, if you just go to the grocery store or whatever, how many people you wind up coming in relatively close contact yeah. with. Just throw, I mean, You go to get gas. You go to the gas station. You pick up the gas handle. You put it in your car. You don't think about it. And then later on you, you, you rub your eye or something and that's how this thing gets transmitted. Yeah, it's – um. It's funny whenever, when, you know, whenever we go grocery shopping, if Liddy picks it up, she better put it in the basket. She's like, don't put that back. If you pick it up, put it in the basket. If I bought a tomato that had some like, like you pick it up and you look at the other side and it's got a couple of scars on it. And it's one I might normally put back, but I'm like, nope, you know what? I touched it. I'm, it's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Liddy's not like that. Like, I'm not going to buy that. Well, then why'd you pick it up? Um <laughs> So the the draft in the five rounds, one point I wanted to make to jump back on that was this, I think it's, it's unfortunately convenient how well that plays with baseball's move to, to contract some minor league teams that now this year, if they only draft five rounds worth of players and however many undrafted free agents they sign, that's that many less players that are new into camp this year that would be going off to short season, short season, single a go up to tri city and play for the, the dust devils. So you're losing 25 kids that they would have signed. That's a whole roster's worth of players. So it's that much easier for major league baseball to come back and say, well, you know what? Maybe we really don't need short season single a, Yeah. maybe we can just keep those kids at the complex and, and add an extra team to the summer league. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. And then, you know, with, with the, basically the minor league problem, minor league season not happening is that it's going to, some of those teams are going to go bankrupt or some of those teams are going to have to ask for money and they're not going to be, you know, either from the government or, you know, petition major league baseball where they're not going to have it and they're going to go under anyway. And right. maybe it's going to be one of those teams and you hate to say this, maybe it's going to be one of those teams that wasn't on the list. And I know that list isn't in stone or I'm sure it's very fluid. Um, but that, you know, the two, the two inter- independent leagues, the Sugarland Skeeters and, St. Paul and the St. Paul team. I mean, those, those guys can be done by, by the next season. Right. So I mean, hopefully that's where the government assistance comes in. Yeah. Cause I would think that those organizations would qualify as some sort of a, of a small business. Uh, b- but I, it's, 
it's already not easy to run a minor league team. I mean, I I can't imagine that minor league owners are raking in money, profit, you know, hand over fist every year. They're getting by, Uh, but they're getting by with smart business, smart business practices and that kind of stuff. So a year with no baseball. Well, so what's happening? Are they still maintaining the fields? They still need to maintain the facilities in some form. So you got to pay people to, to keep the grass grown and to keep the place clean and painted and all this stuff. Otherwise it's going to be in a level of disrepair. And that's much, that much more work you have to put in when it's time to turn it on. Yeah. You have two weeks to get that stuff together. Right. Kind of like, yeah. So they've, they've they've got to keep it somewhat ready the whole time because they're sitting in limbo wondering, is it even going to happen as we sit here right now? I can't see how they play baseball in the minor league uh, affiliated teams at all this year. And I'm growing increasingly, I'm, I'm I'm losing confidence every day that we're going to see Major League Baseball this yeah. season. Yeah, and you know what? To be to be real honest, and you hate to say it, and you hate to have one year lost of you know so many players that are you know you know we, we a full season of Tatis, you know a, a year where we could have saw a, a Mackenzie Gore, Luis Patino. I don't want to see those guys on taxi squads. Like I want. I want legitimate chances for Mackenzie Gore to be a rookie of the year, to get enough mm-hmm. innings, to get enough starts, you know, depending on how that looks. If, you know, then to have him like, oh, he pitched five games and, you know, he got, you know, 30 innings under his belt. Now we, you know, it's 50 innings for, for, uh, for a starting pitcher or for a pitcher to lose rookie status, but still. Oh, you know, right. Yeah. But on the same breath, you, you, I want to see him, but I want, we need that rookie of the year, and we lost it to Fernando Tatis. I think we have a really good chance of getting it in Mackenzie Gore. Uh, you know, if he had a, you know, at least several games to develop. Well, the the trophy isn't what I'm so concerned about. It's the development time. Yeah. Um. And so, like this year, I was curious to see what Ty France's role was going to be, and if he was going to have a chance to establish his bat at the major league level. C.J. Abrams. What do you see with a whole season at Fort Wayne? Um, they're going to look at him defensively. Does he look like he can stay at shortstop? Are they going to move him around a little bit? Um, Estori Ruiz, he just moved out to left field last year. Uh, he had some issues with swing and miss. You know, uh, Gabriel Arias is going to go up to double A. How is he going to look there? How is he going to hold up? Those questions aren't going to be answered this year. And I don't care how much work you put in at the complex, what kind of interest squad, whatever. Yeah extended uh like fall instructs it's not the same as heat of the moment decisions and lessons learned that 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 only happen under the pressure of competitive baseball that that matters to these guys yeah luis caposano um you know joey cantilla was gonna just be he was gonna be a lead ace this year up on lake elsinore yeah, so was he going to crush it the first half and make his yeah. way up to double A, or is he going to have to go through a bunch of adjustments? We're we're not going to know. And then on the far side of that are guys like Jason Vossler that were in triple A, uh, third base, first base. You're kind of fighting for his last chance. It's like, how long are these guys going to hang around? Um, it, because at, at some point, you need to look at it like, okay, well, I'm not making any money this year. Right. Next year, am I going to go back to AAA and, and try to make whatever 15 grand? Or am I going to get my real estate license and <laughs> start you know, brokering mortgages and trying, right, to, right. trying to pay the bills? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It is, uh, it is crazy. Uh, we are that's, – that's, that's about it. That's um... – <sighs> We're going to come up right now. We're going to have David Krell on, and it's a really cool, interesting interview and discussion about uh, Jackie Robinson and his impact on the game and American culture. Hi, I'm Dr. Travis Ehlers, and I'm a certified chiropractic sports physician. been in practice for 14 years, and I'm located at Oasis MD in Mira Mesa. I see patients anywhere from the weekend warrior to professional athletes, all the way to kids, pregnant women, basically anyone that has musculoskeletal conditions. So if you want any more information or would like to uh, see a chiropractor, you can locate me at 844-627-4763. That's my office number. Otherwise, you can get more information on my website, www.com drtravisehealers.com. Otherwise, um, I have social media, Instagram, 
Twitter and Facebook. So just uh, look up my name, Dr. Travis Ehlers. David Krull is an author of several baseball books, including Our Bums, The Brooklyn Dodgers in History, Memory, and Popular Culture. We're going to talk to David today about Jackie Robinson and his impact on the game, civil rights, and American popular culture. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. How are you? Well, I'm okay. How about you, Roy? Oh, I'm hanging in there. You know, the new normal is, I guess, pretty abnormal. It's it's just kind of crazy. So, David, yeah, we... I think we're all waiting for baseball to get back to normal. <laughs> you know, when we watch simulated games on a video game uh, on on TV is when, you know, we really need to get back to real people playing baseball. Yeah. Here in San Diego, they have... Um, they, Fox Sports San Diego and the Padres are... They're playing a virtual game on MLB Show 20, and they're having our um, our announcers, uh, Mudcat Grant and Don Arcillo, they will they're broadcasting the game, and it's just you know it's the virtual game. The Mets announcers did that as well on the SNY channel here, Sportsnet New York, and they called it as a regular game. Yeah, it, it, is it? Are there are there position battles there for the Mets? Feels like oh wow, I didn't know we had that guy on our team or. Exactly. Yeah. So, hey, Dave, we were talking a couple of days ago, and you're from Jersey City, and talking right. about Jackie Robinson, uh, I'd mentioned that he, you know, his first uh, game in uh, in Florida was the Daytona Tortugas, but you said his first minor league game was in Jersey City. Where you're at, yeah? Well, the first official game, yeah. The, fir- the first regular season game was in Jersey City. The Montreal Royals came here to play the Jersey City Giants at Roosevelt Stadium. April 18, 1946, and Jackie went four for five. There's a statue of him to commemorate his uh, impact on Jersey City and on the game that this historic event took place. A couple of anachronisms with the statue. It's uh, Jackie in a Dodgers uniform. He was playing with the Royals at the time. And I always thought that the statue should be uh, a picture of him shaking George Shuba's hand at home plate, which, you know, we talk, we talk a lot and we hear a lot about Pee Wee Reese embracing Jackie before a game in Cincinnati. Yeah. But Shuba did this in Jersey City, and it was quite a sight. If you see it in the newsreels, you can see it on YouTube, or, or there are photos, certainly. And I think that would have been a much starker statement to make about Jackie's impact. But I wasn't in charge. No one consulted me, nor should they. And it's just the way it is. So when... when... The, the, statue, the statue, I should say, is at, uh, in Journal Square, which is pretty much the heart of Jersey City. So it's, uh, it's not something that was... Uh, that they decided to do at the site of the stadium, which is really on the outskirts of uh, where where Roosevelt Stadium was, okay. is kind of on the on the outer ends of Jersey City. This is right in the heart of the city. Yeah, so that stadium no longer exists, right? In any form? No, that that stadium was demolished in the mid '80s for housing, nice housing. You know, to kind of go back here in San Diego for a minute, uh, in North Park here, just a few minutes away, is uh, the Sandlot ball field that Ted Williams played in and um you can still I I played in the league ball I played you know rec league ball there and um you know it's 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 funny to be able to just sit you know and drive down the street no that's where he grew up and that's the ball field that he played in and obviously it's different dirt different grass but you just you kind of go back to when that god there was nothing up there in that part of the city and you know someone that I mean I tell people all the time you know who's played there no oh Ted Williams oh who's that Ay, caramba. Yeah. Um, but moving along. So, you Brett, know, so b- before we move on from that handshake too much, you, I, I just, while we're talking, I Googled this. Um, it looks like in Youngstown, Ohio, they are actually uh, in the process of making a statue of that specific moment. Um, yeah, George Shuba is the Youngstown, Youngstown native. Right. I, I've heard about that. And there, there's a, an effort somewhere, uh, somebody approached me about, a statue of Don Newcomb, I believe, somewhere in New Jersey. So these things are going to pop up, and I, I think the good news about that is we're not losing history. It's coming back. We're always afraid that we're losing sight of Ted Williams, Stan Musial, Jackie Robinson, Mickey Mantle. Um, I share that fear with a lot of 
friends and colleagues. But with statements like that, with projects like the one you mentioned, that means that things are coming full circle. And especially now in this, this chaotic time that we're in, where there's a certain nostalgia creeping in to all levels, not just sports, but entertainment too, where people are looking at it, I think, as comfort food. You know, I think people are looking to those 50s and 60s sitcoms as comfort food, and they're going through old baseball cards, and they're playing Stratomatic, and they're looking at old baseball movies. So to have a statue of Shuba and Robinson would be a terrific statement, and I'm not surprised, especially now. Talk about nostalgia before uh, we came on. I watched two hours of George Carlin. <laughs> we, my wife and I watched two hours of George Carlin. I was like, oh, my God, I just I missed that guy. Um, Branch Rickey signed you know, Jackie Robinson. He wasn't the best player in the Negro Leagues at that time. Uh, were, other, were other teams, were other players considered? Well, I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say best. I mean, I'm, I wasn't there, so I can't really tell you uh, with any authority if, if – people were better there are others who are more familiar with it who might say monty Irvin was better or josh gibson or so forth and unfortunately josh gibson died of a brain tumor but uh, jackie was older he was more mature he was 26 the other guys were younger uh, monty Irvin, from what i i'm told from people who have studied his biography and studied his life he was certainly capable but jackie had more maturity he you know, 26 when he was signed, 28 when he broke the color line with Brooklyn. Now, it's a it's a bit of a shame because you think, well, geez, what could he have done if he was 22? What could, yeah. he, what could he have done just five years younger, six years younger? But I think he made a pretty impactful statement, 311 lifetime batting average for the, the time he was with Brooklyn from 47 to 56. And... You know, the rest is history. Could the other guys who were younger have withstood the punishment, the verbal taunts that Jackie did? We'll never know. But Jackie was married. He had Rachel Robinson, who was a terrific partner. And the story goes that Branch Rickey sent Buzzy Bavese, uh, basically his right-hand man, to Montreal to observe Robinson, but also to observe Mrs. Robinson in the stands. And Mrs. Robinson was full of class and dignity and comportment. And Buzzy went back to Branch Rickey and said, if Jackie Robinson is good enough for Rachel Robinson, <laughs> he's good enough for the Brooklyn Dodgers. <laughs> God, you know, and, and that's, and that's, you know, it's really a, a tandem. You know, maybe Jackie could have been, you know, allowed on the field, but his wife you know, was the quiet one, or maybe his wife was, you know, got her all the taunting, and, and I'm sure the bereavement she got in the in the stands, you know, could have been fighting back when Jackie wasn't. So to have them both be, um, kind of take that moment in history and, you know, not fight back, I think takes a lot, and it takes just more courage than I could ever muster. Well, I think we're learning more with documentaries like the one that Ken Burns did recently in the past few years about Jackie Robinson for PBS. We're learning more about how integral a role Rachel Robinson played in that dynamic, because that's a tough thing to go through alone. And he had Mrs. Robinson. And if you watch the movie 42, he had uh, Wendell Smith, who was a black sports writer, as kind of his uh, maybe not par maybe partners, too strong a word. But he certainly had him as a friend and an ally to, um, you know, to navigate through breaking the color line first uh being signed with brooklyn in 45 and then all through montreal in 46 and then eventually getting to the dodgers at 47 you guys are talking about rachel robinson uh today there was an article um on the athletic written by joe posnanski who's been who's done this fantastic series about his top 60 moments in baseball um and one of them is about jackie robinson stealing home and yogi berra uh protesting the call uh, but he tells a story in there about how for the rest of their lives, whenever Yogi Berra and Rachel Robinson would be in the same place, she would go up to him and say safe. And he would say out. And then they'd laugh and, and, and embrace. Right. And I think Lindsay Berra has carried on that tradition. Yogi's granddaughter, who's very involved with her grandfather's legacy and the museum in Little Falls, New Jersey, uh, which 
on the site of Montclair State University, right in back of the ballpark, which is named for Yogi Berra, where the Jersey Jackals play. That's wonderful. So did did Branch Rickey know of, you know, the previous kind of run-ins all the way back into high school with our college with, with Jackie, where he was kind of standing up for, you know, racial injustice and, and mistreatment. Uh, did he know those things? And did he take those well, into account? Well, he knew, he knew about the court-martial. But Jackie was also an officer. People sort of glossed over that. You have to have a certain comportment and potential and maturity if you're a lieutenant. So he stood up for what he thought was right. He wasn't going to go to the back of the bus when he was at this military base in 1944. And he stood up and he was acquitted. Now, Branch Rickey knew that, didn't seem to care, because if he really, if it really made that much of a, of an, of a, an impact on Ricky, then he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. He wouldn't have signed Jackie Robinson. So whatever material he got, whatever research he did, it didn't seem to matter as much as getting the best player on the field, because this was really about baseball. If you read Roger Kahn, Roger Kahn says that, you know, this was not a sociology experiment. This was about baseball. And if you just go by the pure meritocracy of it, that's really what this was. He wanted to put the best players on, but he needed the right guy. He needed the right player to be the first. Because if you get the right player in, then you get all of these other Negro Leagues players like Campanella, Newcomb, Joe Black, Willie Mays down the road, Monty Irvin, and so forth. But he has to have the right one. Now, would baseball have been integrated Absent that, sure. Would it have been done in 1947? Probably not. We might have waited until the 50s. You know, this was right after World War II. The country was refocused. This was the time to do it. He was the guy to do it. Ricky was the guy to pioneer it on, on his end. And the funny thing is, they each credited the other. Yeah. Jackie Robinson was a guest star, uh, a guest star on What's My Line? the syndicated version in 1969 and the host Wally Bruner just goes on and on about how great Jackie was and changed baseball, changed America. And Jackie says, well, that's very nice, but Branch Rickey had the harder job. And Branch Rickey was interviewed by Jack Brickhouse sometime in the mid sixties, same topic. And Branch Rickey says, well, I had the easier job. I, I was behind a desk. He had to go out there and play. Yeah. He had to go out there and withstand the taunts and the punishment and perform on top of that. So it really was a, a bond between them. You know, and and back to the acquittal and the trial, he was he was doing that, and I think he had an injury, and those were the two things that really stopped him from going to combat with the, uh, I think it was the 571st, the tank battalion. Well, but one of the things that comes up in the movie 42 is that his arm wasn't as strong as it needed to be to play third or short. Uh, so they put him at second and, and the, you, know, you see in the beginning of the movie, he's really training to play first base because that was open. I think there was a problem with one of his ankles when he was scouted by Ricky's scout, Clyde Sukeforth, And uh, that didn't seem to be too much of an issue going forward but look uh, the, the proof is in is in the pudding he, whatever physical maladies he may have had he overcame them and and you know shocked pitchers and brought championships to brooklyn and paved the way for some of the other players we mentioned absolutely so jackie robinson field is in daytona beach florida where the first integrated major league mlb spring training game was held uh, it's home of the right. Tortugas. Now that team is on MLB's uh, teams to be contracted. It yeah. just seems almost like a travesty for MLB to do that and it not be, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, maybe bronzed or just set aside for for um, humanity's purposes to have that. That's the field where he, you know, really played the first game. Can you tell us about that game? Well, look, he he played in Daytona. He he was. Uh... He didn't get a hit. He stole second base. Brooklyn beat the Montreal Royals. It was an intra-squad game. You see this all the time. The AAA team plays the parent ball club. That happens all the time in in spring training. But, look, Ebbets Field is gone. If there's any ballpark that's going to be a landmark, it's Ebbets Field. 
and that went by the wayside and became an apartment complex. So it's good that we're talking about this. And people always ask me, uh, you know, are, are we done with Jackie Robinson? Are we done with Babe Ruth? Are we done with Joe DiMaggio? What more can you say about them? And not to glorify it too much, but my response is, well, are we done with George Washington? Yeah. Are we done with John Kennedy? Are we done with World War II? There's always something else to talk about. There's always some other angle to talk about. And the funny thing is, and Donovan and I were talking about this the other day, the, the time between the Jackie Robinson story in 1950 and the 42 movie in the 2010s, you're talking about 60 plus years yeah. before his story is put on screen. Now, you can make the argument that the HBO movie in the mid-1990s, Soul of the Game, is a Jackie Robinson uh, movie. It's not. It's about Robinson, Satchel Paige, and Josh Gibson. It's about the three of them and who's going to be the first black player in the major leagues. But as a strict biographical movie, 60-plus years. Now, we're not privy to why it happened. Maybe they couldn't get the financing. Maybe the family didn't approve the script. Right. All sorts of things happen. Uh, it's also a slow progress in terms of the impact that he made because, let's be honest, it took almost 30 years to get a black manager in the major leagues. Yeah. I mean, that's ludicrous if you think about it, that it took 30 years that it went through from 47 to 75, I think it was, when Frank Robinson became became a manager. And he played – Frank Robinson played with him back – was it back in college or was it back in the early? Um, what did I, I think I read that. It wouldn't, in, be, it wouldn't be college. It wouldn't be college. I think Robinson was going. One Robinson was, as the song says, one Robbie going out, another one coming in, and they might have overlapped a little bit. But by the time of Frank Robinson coming into, uh, you know, the managerial ranks, Jackie Robinson and some of these other players started to be forgotten. Mm. And that's what happens over time. You know, we forget the impact that these guys made and the sacrifices that they made. And we ought not forget them. So while he was on the Dodgers, you know, not only did other players in the league in, in the fans obviously not like it, but there were some players on that squad that had issues in the beginning with, with him playing, yeah, with playing with a with right. African-American. Yeah. Yeah, the Southerners, uh, Kirby Higby and Bobby Bragan, but they – they later changed their tune. Kirby Higby wrote an autobiography, which said some nice things about Jackie and Bobby Bragan. You see this in the movie. He changed his mind. Pee Wee Reese never signed anything, didn't want to. He basically said, look, if, he, if he's going to be good enough for the, for the team, then I'll, I'll have to work harder to get my job. So there was a lot of prejudice to be sure. And you, you look at other teams, the Yankees didn't integrate until 55. The Phillies, I think, was 57, and the Red Sox not until 59. God, you know, so we, can't, we can't say that he unlocked the door. He did pave the way, right? but these other teams had to come on board, too. It's not like a light switch that they turned on, and all of a sudden, all these black players were coming in. Some of these teams were steadfast and refused to scout and sign black players, and to their detriment. Yeah, you know, and thanks... I feel now that we really should be saying a lot more about his story because of the low amount, you know, the, the low, lower numbers of African-American kids playing baseball now are in the big leagues. You know, there's just, you know, it's been huge with the Latin players and, and the South American players, but the, uh, the influence of, of black Americans in, in major league baseball. And I'm saying this as a white guy um, is, is, uh, is down. And, you know, I think we need to bring those down stories. Board. Yeah, you know, it's down across the board. You kids today are playing soccer. They're playing lacrosse. They're not playing baseball. It's losing that connection. It's losing that that tie to previous generations. And I don't think I can point to any specific reason that's happening. It just seems to evolve, and as a result, they're losing a potential fan base. Yeah. You know, and they're going to continue doing that if they, you know, more than more than likely cut the forty-two teams from the minor league uh, minor leagues. That's just going to cut up in you know forty-two communities 
and regions of yeah. the country that are going to be without fans. There's going to be a big backlash in those larger communities because they took it away. And then subsequent people that come into, the, into these communities aren't going to have baseball to play. They're not going to be interested. And, you know, baseball being such a hard sport. And, you know, if I can get on my get off my lawn uh, at 50, um, it's a hard sport. And kids these days, you know, they I, I really feel that they, uh, you know, doing basketball, playing soccer, playing lacrosse, right. um, and other sports um, are a lot easier to do. And you, there's a lot more, uh, you know, who was, the, who was the guy that got drafted, like one of the top top draft picks, but he chose football. Similar Tyler because, Murray. Yeah, you know, it's going to take him three years to maybe make the majors at best, and that's if he goes right. level to level to level. Um, well, well, and to complicate that even further, now, now Major League Baseball is cutting the draft back. This year it's only going to be five rounds. And they're talking about in the future, cutting it from 40 back to as few as 10 rounds. So now if you're a high school athlete and you're thinking, well, do I want to pursue baseball or do I want to try one of these other sports where I have a better chance of getting drafted? And then after I get drafted, I can go play at the top level in a shorter period of time. That's an easy decision to make. So you're talking about American athletes playing football, basketball. So the demographics of all of that comes into play. Um, and it, it, it makes sense why you see a diminishing number of black baseball players uh, in, in America. Well, I, again, I, I think it's starting across the board from the cities to the farms to the suburbs. It's a, there's a deterioration in the connection between the, the little leagues and, um, and, and baseball in the abstract. They, they, I don't know why. I would love to know why so that maybe we can fix it. Maybe we can address it, but there's, there's a loss of the history. There's a loss of the interest. And when you talk about things like Jackie Robinson uh, and his civil rights impact, that's being lost. When you talk about Joe DiMaggio's import as a hero, when you talk about Mickey Mantle and how he changed the game and what a hero he was on the field. And of course he had his, off the field challenges. These are all stories that are so rich. Ted Williams sacrificing during World War II to go and fly missions, and in Korea, we're losing this um, this link to the past, and especially now because we probably won't have a Major League Baseball season. The contraction that you mentioned, and the stories that make up baseball, and the interest we. We have to be vigilant about keeping them going. We have to be vigilant yeah. about doing things like like you're doing, the, the podcast and getting the word out, uh, the, the passion that you guys show for the Padres and the Padres farm system. What might happen is when some of these cities lose a team, you might find a couple of guys starting a new team or a new league. Look what's going on with the Savannah Bananas and how popular they are and what they're doing to engage the fans. And Savannah is a great minor league town. They've had several teams in the past several decades. So now you have somebody coming in and infusing it with somebody with something new. That might happen. To to cut off the funnel of talent, I don't understand. The, The money has become so conspicuous in what's going on and money was always an issue don't get me wrong it's always about you know how do you make more from what you have that's all fine fine and good but when you do that to the detriment of the future of the game i think that somebody somewhere needs to do a reset and say maybe this isn't such a great idea let's at least look at all the options and forecast how is this going to impact Major League Baseball, how's it going to impact minor league baseball? What's going to be the in the abstract the effect? Because the abstract always comes back to the tangible. If people say, well, they'll, they'll lose an opportunity to root for a team and they'll lose an opportunity to feel a part of something, people can't put a value on that. But when you say, okay, they're not going to, they're now going to sour in baseball and they're not going to the major league team that's 40 miles away or 50 miles away or 70 miles away, whatever the nearest team is, or they're not going to watch the superstation. They're not going to watch the games on satellite. They're not going to buy merchandise. Well, then it turns into the tangible. Yeah. And I just hope that people take a second look at what's going on because we're talking about literally the future of baseball. Yeah, and and when Major League Baseball is spending so money, uh, so much money on 
promoting the game overseas with the London series. I mean, just one London series could have paid for all the minor leagues to be to be renovated and uh, all these fields that they they feel are substandard, which several of them are, and I'm, I I don't dispute that fact, but. It's just it seems like they're misguided in, in how to fix the game and and to grow the game. It's just kind of a big stink. So getting back to well, Jack, was... go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just okay. kind of getting back to Jackie, and uh, you know, I read that he had, you know, in his retirement, he he sold the exclusive rights to a to a magazine, to Look Magazine, and right. it just it seemed really weird from nowadays when players are making so much money, but like it just seemed weird in general. Well, I looked at the video where he was on I've Got a Secret, and he came out on stage with Gary Moore, and the audience asked questions. And if I heard right, uh, the interview's on YouTube, and if I heard right, he had signed the deal with Look three years before. So Look had an exclusive right to publish the story about when he was going to retire. It's not something that he did that week. This deal had been in place. For a couple of years and that's how it was back then these guys were not making the kind of money that we're talking about now you talk about players making 70 million 80 million 100 million even on a pro rate of basis those guys back then were not making anywhere near that yeah and then so they had to have other uh, business interests they had to have other jobs in the off season whether it was writing a book or making speeches or whatever it was yeah, that's uh, yeah, it, it absolutely. And today, it's God, even major league minimum is uh, pretty astronomical. So going on past past Jackie's his playing career into the direct actions in, into civil rights and talk about ways that he impacted not only just in the in the overall scheme of the civil rights with campaigns and, and whatnot, but like his direct actions, taking action as a as a job with the national bank. I think it was. Freedom National Bank, uh, where he was instrumental in um, in getting that off the ground, and certainly he consulted with Martin Luther King Jr. Ken Burns and his team did a wonderful documentary for PBS about Jackie and his civil. He felt it was uh, an obligation and an opportunity to go into the civil rights movement and use his fame, use his clout use his voice to speak up for issues like fair housing. And uh, it's it's a shame that he passed away when he did because things were just getting going. He passed away in 72. And the civil rights movement was still and is still moving forward. Yeah. But it, if you think about the Civil Rights Act of 64 and he dies only eight years later, there was still a lot of work to be done. And who knows what he might have been able to accomplish had he lived. Yeah, and he was getting treatments for diabetes. And now you think, yeah, diabetes. I mean, I've, who doesn't have a friend that, you know, that takes insulin once a day and our monitors our blood sugar. And, uh, you know, to die of something now, it just seems so common to, to have a solution for. It's almost like just unfair. It really is unfair. Yeah, I, I, he, he was certainly deteriorating towards the end. You can see his hair was all white, snow white on top. Uh, even when he does the, the What's My Line show, that's in 69. That's he, that's three years before he dies. I think he was 50 when he did that show. And he's he's not walking at a normal pace. So you, you can see the effects starting. And who knows how long he had had it before then. Well, um, you know, how how is so overall in 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 movies and in print uh, has the characterization characterization of Jackie kind of evolved over time? Oh, that's a great question. Well, the the Jackie Robinson story is largely fictionalized to fit a nineteen fifty movie narrative. A lot of the stuff that they talk about in the movie didn't take place. He acted as himself and he did quite well is it a wonderful movie it it's not an a movie it's a b movie it's a good movie it's a nice story and for someone who doesn't know anything about jackie it's a it's a good movie blair underwood's portrayal was a little more nuanced and again he wasn't the star that was really more of an ensemble piece with delroy lindo as page and and uh, michael t williamson as gibson 
Uh, the one that we know of most recently is Chadwick Boseman, who I think did an amazing job at not only portraying Jackie off the field, but on the field and how he would basically taunt pitchers by taking huge leads, by dancing around, by trying to get them not to focus on the plate, get them to focus on him. And then if they did throw, then they would still have him on, you know, on their minds on whether he was going to run or go back to the base or just stand still. So I, I, I think we're starting to get into a period, not just with Jackie, but with other uh, portrayers of real people where they're becoming more nuanced, where people are paying more attention to history, where there's more information available, certainly through newspaper databases, through the Internet. Um, if we're lucky enough to have oral history, uh, if we're lucky enough to have witnesses who were there at the time, then that just gets added into the mix. We live in a world now where people are really aware and they're going to know if you gloss over something. So if you're going to do a portrayal of Jackie Robinson, it might not be spot on because no movie is spot on 100% with the facts, but it's got to be pretty close. Yeah. And it certainly has to be a near mirror of the person and what could have happened or what did happen. Well, Dave, we really appreciate you coming on. What are you working on right now? I have an anthology that I edited called The New York Mets in Popular Culture. If all goes well, that's coming out in the fall. And another book about 1962 called Tentatively and Presently, 1962 Baseball Hollywood, JFK, and the Beginning of America's Future. And that, if all goes well, will be published this time next year by University of Nebraska Press. What's that one about? Well, it's about baseball Hollywood, JFK, the beginning of America's future in 1962. Uh, half is baseball. It's a great year, as you guys know. 1962, the Mets and the Colt 45s debut. Colt 45s later become the Astros. Great World Series between the Giants and the Yankees. Seven games. And a, a really epic playoff between the Dodgers and the Giants. So baseball covers half the book. And then, oddly enough, it starts with Jackie Robinson getting the call that he's elected to the Hall of Fame in January. The induction takes place in the summer. The other half of the book concerns history. Uh, Jackie Kennedy giving the tour of the White House. JFK with the Cuban Missile Crisis. John Glenn orbiting the Earth. Hollywood breaking ground. Literature breaking ground. Uh, what was going on in television at that time. So it's really what I hoped to accomplish was really to put you in a time machine short of actually having a time machine and take you back to what life was like in 62 and why it was such a pivotal year in all of these different areas. Well, and that kind of springs board right into the, you know, the late sixties and the tumultuous year of 68. And uh, that's fantastic. I can't wait for the Mets book to come out. My wife grew up a Mets fan. Her dad is still yeah. a suffering Mets fan. Uh, back east and uh, we have some friends up in LA that are Mets fans they come down and actually they were down here and uh the we were the day that Bartolo Colon hit that ball we were at that game and much to this Padre fan chagrin 1200 of them seven line army I won't say it on my yeah. podcast people were in right field and uh, yeah. it was a sad day for <laughs> The seven-line army is, is pretty loyal, <laughs> I, I have to admit. But the funny thing, you mentioned the, the, the 62 year, and what was interesting to me is that it had never been written about. There are loads of book about, books about 68, 69 with the Mets. Yeah. There may be some about the 67 Cardinals. You see a few books about the Pirates and the Yankees in 1960. Uh, 1961, I mean, gosh, that's been a TV movie for uh, starring Thomas Jane and Barry Pepper, directed by Billy Crystal about the home run race. And I never saw one about 62. And I was in a writing workshop and I said, I'm writing this book about Houston and New York, the two teams that came out of what was supposed to be the Continental League. Uh, there were two American League teams as well, but they premiered in six or debuted in 61. Uh, 
Mets and Colt 45s in 62. So I'm going to write about that. And the guy who was teaching the class, who was a literary agent, who taught the workshop where the Brooklyn Dodgers book was born, Our Bums, came out of that workshop. He said, David, I know you're a baseball guy, but books with larger topics, or broader topics rather, get broader readerships. So I came home that night, and I, I knew some things that happened in 62, like To Kill a Mockingbird and, right. and, uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. And then I just started Googling, like, this happened, and this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And I, before I knew it, I had 30 different subtopics to write about. And then it was just a matter of kind of positioning them and saying, gee, you know, there's so much Hollywood stuff. Let's do a chapter about movies. There's so much literature. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out that year. Sex and a Single Girl came out that year. Let's group that into a chapter and let's talk about literature. And then it, it was a little bit of a push and pull with myself about how to organize the the chapters. And, you know, we'll see. It's in the editing stage now. But I'm I'm really happy with uh, with how it came out. And I, I hope you guys will be too. Well, we'll certainly have you come on when those books come out, uh, Dave. We really appreciate you coming on, and thanks a lot. Thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs>